Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I want to share a message with you entitled Living in the Aftermath. Living in the Aftermath. I want you to just to turn to your neighbor right now and just look at them and say, I am living in the aftermath. I am living in the aftermath. Turn to your second choice this morning and say, you are living in the aftermath. Right? We're living in the aftermath. We're one week out from Easter, and I even imagine what it would have been like for the disciples after they had encountered the resurrected Christ, and He began to speak purpose and meaning and hope and power into their future, into what He has called them for as He met with them post-resurrection, Jesus began to speak into their purpose, right? I'm resurrected for a purpose. You were resurrected with me. Come on, what do we do now? I want to answer the question this morning, what do we do now? Now that Jesus is resurrected, now that we know that we have been resurrected with Him, now that we know that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, what does that mean for our lives? If I had a subtitle this morning, it would be a walk that is worthy, a walk that is worthy. And we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4. We're doing the series at the moment in the prison letters, and uh, we've spent a lot more time in Ephesians than I initially thought we would have. But it's just so amazingly jam-packed with uh, incredible truths for our lives that we have kind of lingered in Ephesians. And I'm cool with that. Uh, we want the Word to speak to us. We're not dictating to the Word what its time restraints are, but we are allowing it to speak to us because as it speaks to us, it changes us. You're being transformed this morning. It might not feel like it. You might still feel like the same person. You might still feel like you're struggling with the same things. But do you know that the Bible says that day by day, by God's glory, we are transformed into His image. As we behold Christ, something is happening on the inside of you. And we believe that that's happening in your life today. So I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we finally progressed into Ephesians 4. And uh, I want to read the first 10 verses then I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then I want to break down a little bit about what this life looks like living in the aftermath of the finished work of the cross. But Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A lot of Christians, a lot of pastors, a lot of churches uh, do the opposite of that. They're eager to bring the division. They always want to highlight what divides as opposed to being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We spoke about it being according to the riches of His glory the last time we were in Ephesians. And now again it says that each one of us has received grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. How great is that measure? Do you think that's a limited measure? Do you think that's a small measure? 
Do you think that's some minimized thing, some small part of your life? No. According to the measure of Christ's gift, you have been graced this morning. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He led captivity captive. Those that were captive before were led into the heavens with Christ, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And in his resurrection, the captives, that was us, we were raised with Christ. And we were led with him to be seated in heavenly places. If he descended, he also ascended so that he might do what? Fill all. So that he might transform us. So that he might allow us and empower us to live in a victory. We could never have lived in our own strength. Your position this morning, you might be sitting here in the city of Joburg on a seat out here in River Sands. But your position in heaven is seated with Christ. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. And so we live in the ascension, in the resurrection, in this power that Jesus has for us. I want to go ahead and pray for us this morning. And then we're going to break this down a little bit. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you, God, that right now we can humble ourselves before your word, that we can hear from heaven, that we can hear by the Spirit of God, that our ears are available to hear, our hearts are are tuned in to the frequency of your Spirit this morning, God. We thank you that your word is speaking to us, that it is living, that it is active, and that it's producing a harvest in our spirits this morning, God. I pray that every person in this place, God, would have a greater revelation of who they are in Christ than the moment they arrived here. I pray for every heart, every soul, even those that will listen to this message online, God. I pray that they will be touched by the Spirit of God this morning. In your mighty name, we thank you for this. Amen. Amen. So every single day, we experience thousands of events, small events, small moments, interactions, uh, things that happen to us, things we encounter, things we witness, things we hear. Every day, we, uh, we, we go through a series or a variety of events that many of them make little to no impact on our lives. We will never think about them again. We, you know, they, they haven't shifted anything fundamental in our hearts or in our lives. They, 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 they're just kind of another moment in another day. But every so often, there are events that take place in our lives that are like a bomb going off. They have that impact of, a, of a, an explosion in our lives that as that bomb drops, it explodes and it fundamentally impacts everything about our lives. In fact, the shock waves and the ripples of those events carry through every single interaction thereafter, every single moment we live, every single thought we have, every single relationship we enter into from that, that one thing that changed in our lives, it has a knock-on impact, a shockwave effect throughout the rest of our lives and the rest of the days that we are on this earth. We have certain moments like that. And we believe in both. We believe in the small everyday moments. We believe in the little things that God is constantly doing, constantly doing, 
constantly doing. And we believe in the impact of that to produce change over time. But we also believe in certain encounters, certain kairos moments is the Greek word, which is when God breaks through from heaven into the time and space that you're living into right now. In fact, God had prepared that kairos moment and you step into it. And as you step into it, it's like a bomb going off in your life. God fundamentally shifts something. The day that you recognize what Jesus did for you on the cross is one of those moments. The day you get baptized in the Holy Spirit and filled with God's Spirit is one of those moments. There's many other moments like that that God brings a shift, a revelation, an unveiling that fundamentally changes your setup and your posture for the rest of your days like this massive bomb going off. And we spend the rest of our lives living in the aftermath of that moment, living in the aftermath of that event. The aftermath of a bomb, if you look at places in our world in history where where major bombs have gone off or major explosions have happened, there's a great impact on the lives of thousands of people. And I believe the greatest bomb that ever went off, the greatest explosion, the greatest Kairos moment was the moment that Jesus died on the cross. It happened 2,000 years ago when God became man, where he took on flesh, where he laid down his rights as God and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross, where God was born amongst us, lived on this earth, and then died for the sins of the whole world. There is nothing that will shape history and has shaped history like that very moment. In fact, we split history down the line from everything before Jesus and everything after Jesus. If you think it was powerful to split an atom, Jesus split history in two. And in your own life, that becomes real to you when you receive what Jesus has done for you on the cross. When that truth and that finished work gets applied to you, it splits your life Between everything that happened before Jesus and everything that has happened after Jesus. Nothing is the same again from the moment you receive that truth. You'll never be the same person again. You'll never approach your life in the same way again. Everything after Jesus looks different. And sometimes we wonder how we're supposed to appropriate that. How does this impact my relationships? How does this impact my career? How does this impact my mission on earth? How does it impact my daily life when I wake up in the morning? How does it change the way I live? What's next? What comes after Easter? What comes after the resurrection? What does the aftermath look like? Sometimes it's hard to figure out how to live in the aftermath. When you've had such a significant event take place in your life, what do I do next? I remember when my first son was born. For those of you that are parents, you'll know that there was a life before kids and there is a life after kids. And your life after kids never looks the same way again. For some parents, it takes some time to get used to this idea that I'm never going to be able to live my life the way I did before I had kids. And I remember when my first son, Eli, was born and this brand new life was now my responsibility, how incredibly weighty that responsibility was on me. You know, you have a little bit of a grace period for the first three days when you're in the hospital and the nurses are there and the doctors are there and the physios are there and the staff is there and you can ask questions and you know, you've got all the advice you need. But after three days, it came time for us to go home with that baby. 
And I remember wondering if they knew what they were doing in letting us, as people who knew so little about babies, take this little thing home. And the idea that his life depended on me now. Like, what if I forget to feed him? What if I, what if I forget to look after him? And, and it, was a, it was a weighty moment for me. I remember the pressure of that. What do we do now? Well, you just do the next thing after the next. You just keep taking next steps. Maybe you can remember what it felt like to go through a period of writing exams. Maybe some of you, I know many of you, are still studying. And, you know, that, those ex that exam period, that exam time just consumes so much of your life. Or maybe when you go on a great holiday or a great trip overseas or something like that, and you, you come home and you think, how am I supposed to function again the way I used to? How am I supposed to just go, go back to, to being normal again after everything I've just experienced? How do I reassimilate into normal life? We just came back from an incredible trip to Zambia with our leadership collective students where we were ministering in the villages and we were, we were out there on the base and on the edge of the Zambezi and we were, we were just experiencing, we were doing teachings every morning and taking in the word and worshiping together uh, with all the other missionaries on the base there. And we're like, you know, a week later we're back in Job and it's like, how do I go back to normal life? How do we live in the aftermath? It can be difficult. And so... What Paul is basically saying here is that a relationship with Jesus may start with a one-time event in our lives, but it doesn't remain a one-time event. It becomes a daily encounter. It becomes a daily journey that we take step by step as we live in the aftermath. Did you know that God has more for you than just Resurrection Sunday? He has more for your journey, more for your future, a greater hope that He's called you to. He has an incredible purpose that He's now going to cause you to mature in. He's going to cause you to grow up in. If you still look the same way that you did last year this time, something's wrong. You're not putting a demand on the resurrection power of Jesus. None of us are perfect, but all of us are growing. Or at least we should be. Because that's what Jesus made available to us through His grace. That we don't look the same way tomorrow as we did today or yesterday. When Jesus declared it is finished on the cross, a bomb went off in our lives. And now we live in the aftermath of that power. When nuclear bombs are dropped, it's not like the next day you could just take a walk into Hiroshima and buy some milk and bread. When nuclear bombs are dropped, there is radiation that continues, that persists for thousands of years as a result of the power of that bomb. And the resurrection of Jesus is like a nuclear bomb where the efficacy of that radiation, of that power, of those split atoms, of that moment when, when we all were made alive again, it just permeates our lives. It completely changes the molecular makeup of who we are as people. And so we are really short-circuiting the power of God in our lives when all we think that Christianity is about is, okay, I'm saved. Okay, I'm going to heaven now. No, God has so much more for, that, for you than that. 
He wants you to know the effect of the cross in your life doesn't get weaker and weaker. We, we're not Moses that in the Old Testament that, that encountered God and then he put a veil over his face and people thought that the veil was over his face so that they wouldn't be blinded by the glory because his face shone with the glory of God after he had, he had seen God. No, what the veil was there for, and the Bible tells us that this is because the glory on Moses' face, the shining was fading. It was a fading glory. But in Christ, we don't have a fading glory. We have a glory that the Bible talks about where it says the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until it shines like the noonday sun. Your journey and the power of God on your life doesn't get less and less effective over time. It gets more and more effective. It gets more and more powerful. You walk in a greater revelation daily of the power of Jesus. When Jesus rose again, he called you. He planted you. He gifted you. He called you to the gospel, to the grace of God, to walk now, not by the letter of the law, not by the Old Testament principles, not trying your best to be a religious person, but you walk as sons of God, as many as are filled with the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. That's who you are today. This is powerful. You're called to walk in that grace and to live in the aftermath of the finished work, to know and believe what God has done for you. And as Paul moves into Ephesians 4, and I'm going to ask Brent just to bring my, my favorite apparatus up here again this morning. I don't even know if you are able to read my handwriting on this board from where you're sitting, but I'm enjoying it. And so I'm going to do it. But in Ephesians 4, Paul is actually now shifting in this letter. Remember, in the first three chapters, he has been praying for the church. He's been praying that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. He's been praying that they would begin to recognize who they are. He's been praying that they would experience the hope and know the power that is at work within them, that they wouldn't short change themselves into thinking that, that they're somehow just merely human or barely trying to get by as Christians, as believers. And so we see here in Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 3, and I want to just focus in on a few things here this morning in this verse. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And that's really the sentence I want to focus on mostly this morning. But this is going to produce a humility and a gentleness and a patience and a unity in the church. This is perfect timing for us as we move into Ephesians 4, because it really is talking about the aftermath that we live in coming out of Easter. And Paul wants to talk about how we live in light of and by the power of the cross. And he starts, as we can see here, he starts by saying, I, therefore. Now that therefore is significant because we've just spent three chapters talking about everything that Jesus has done for us, talking about what the cross means for us, talking about the, the, the things that we are in light of the cross. And Paul praying for the church, saying, please know who you are. Please, God, help them to know the power of the resurrection. So I, therefore, as a result of, as a result of what? Everything that we spoke about in Ephesians 1 to 3. How all of us, we're saved 
by the grace of God, not by works, not by being good enough, but by the power of the sacrifice of Jesus and how His Spirit has made us alive together with Christ, is at work within us the hope that we live in. Remember, we were born into this living hope and the power that is at work within us, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, giving life to our mortal bodies. Paul praying all of this. And so what we understand when he says, therefore, is that everything that comes after Ephesians 1 to 3, in other words, chapters 4 to 6, is as a result of and built upon the foundation of everything that we have learned in Ephesians 1 to 3. In the first three chapters of the book of of Ephesians, the first three chapters, there is only literally one imperative. One imperative in the first three chapters. It literally only tells us one thing that we are to do. For, for three whole chapters, Paul hasn't told the church to do a single thing, except in Ephesians 2 verse 12, where he said, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So the only thing that we are told to do in the first three chapters of Ephesians is to remember something. Remember who you were before Christ. From chapters 4 to 6 onwards, There are now forty imperatives, forty things to do, forty things that we are called to in this time, forty things that Paul says this is the aftermath. This is how you live from what we discussed in Ephesians one to three, but none of that would be, imp- would be possible. None of that would be something that you would be able to do if it wasn't for everything that he established in those first three chapters. And this is because Christianity doesn't start, will never start with everything you're supposed to do. How many of you know that some of the people that you've been inviting to church for a long time you want to know why they're saying no? You want to know why they, they don't want to come? Because they think that we're just going to tell them things they're supposed to do. They think that that's what Christianity is. Just a list of moral imperatives that we are supposed to observe. And they don't want to observe those. But Christianity doesn't start with everything that we're supposed to do. It always and forever will start with everything that was done for you. Amen? It starts with what was done for you, the finished work of the cross, a relationship, a genuine, authentic relationship and unity with God, with His Son, Jesus, that grace that has produced imputed righteousness, that has made you righteous. These are the things that we base our lives on. These are the things that empower us to live in the aftermath of what God has done. And so when pastors and preachers get up on stage and they preach at the church with a a long finger pointing at everybody saying, do, do, do. When they preach that without also declaring before that, done, done, done. 
then what they're producing is not Christians, but hypocrites. Because what we're going to try is to take on the form of godliness, take on the form of holiness, take on the form of a believer without having the foundation of a believer, without being fundamentally changed by that bomb that goes off by the finished work of the cross. If I ask somebody to do something, like Paul is instructing the church here with 40 imperatives from verses from chapters 4 to 6. If I ask somebody to do something that they do not have the capability to do, what am I doing? What am I doing? That would be an evil thing for me to put an imperative or put a demand on a person or on a people that they do not have the capacity to fulfill. It's an evil thing to do because you're dooming them to failure and not only failure but condemnation to doubt who they are, to be broken in their own self-image because they haven't been able to do what they felt God expected them to do. Imagine me taking my eight-year-old boy. I've got twin eight-year-old boys. Imagine I take the two of them to uh, Four Ways Life Hospital and I walk straight into the, the, you know, the theater where they're doing, uh, you know, where the neurosurgeon is busy. And I tell the neurosurgeon to step back and I hand a scalpel to each of my eight-year-olds and I say, go ahead, boys. You do the surgery. You, you figure out what's going on in this brain, and, and you quickly do it. What am I doing? That would be evil. Because not only will they fail, but their failure would impact the lives of others. So it would be an evil thing of God to ask us to live a certain way if He hasn't empowered us to live in that way. Which is why Paul so desperately prays in chapters 1 to 3 that you would remember and know and bank on the fact that you have the capacity. That you have it in you. That you're a new creation. Because he cannot ask this before you've realized this. So when God asks us to do something, he, we can trust and believe that we can do it. Because His power and His grace has made it possible. That's what a good father does. As a good father, I'm not going to ask my sons to do something they cannot do. But I will ask them to do some things that I know they can do, even if they haven't realized it yet. You see, there's some things that God is going to ask you to do that you're going to think the moment He asks, you think, I can't do that. And let me tell you, you wouldn't be the first one to have that thought. How many examples do we have in the scriptures of God calling people, young people, old people, men, women, you know, children, whoever, and saying to them, hey, you can go and do this. And they're like, first response is, no, I, I can't. No, but God is saying, I don't want you to rely on what you think you can do. I want you to rely on what I know I can do through you. I want you to believe in what you've got now as a result of the resurrection. And I want you to walk forward in faith, even if you don't think you have the capacity for this. You'll never know your capacity. You'll never know what you're capable of in Christ. You'll never know what you're able to endure until you've actually gone the distance and endured it. Until you've actually said, yes, taken up the call and started walking in that direction. Man, it's a thing in this generation for sure. Everybody is constantly overwhelmed. I don't even have to ask people how they're doing anymore on a Sunday morning. I don't have to come to you and go, hey, how are you doing? 
I could just come up to you and say, hey, you're overwhelmed, aren't you? Because that's literally every answer. I'm just so busy. I'm just so overwhelmed. I just can't handle all of this. Listen to me this morning. You can. Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Do not relegate the power of God in your life to something that you think you're able to do with your own strength. This is a room full of powerful people. Endlessly powerful people. You have the ability to affect change, not only in your world, but in the people's lives around you. Don't tell me that you're overwhelmed when you've got the supply of heaven on your side. It's become a cop-out, honestly. It's become a cop-out. I'm so tired of, of this thing that has come out of social media where, where we're all telling each other how, how overwhelmed we are and how much it is for us. We're not living by faith in that way. And I'm not saying we can't be honest. But there's a way that is, this generation is doing it that actually elevates that status above the new creation in Christ. They're actually honoring their own weakness above the strength of God in their lives. They're giving more credence to their personal setup. You know, I'm an introvert, so I can't go to community group. I'm overwhelmed, so I have to stop coming to church. Come on, guys. If, if coming to church is the level of commitment that we're, that if, if that's what we've dropped the level of commitment to, man, we're in trouble. We're in trouble of never truly fulfilling the call of God on our lives because we've set the bar that low when Jesus has given us a limitless potential in him. We want a room full of giants. We want a room full of giants in this place. Somebody once said that if you want to raise giants, you need high ceilings. That's why we've got a high roof here. We can't even reach this with a ladder. We've got to rise to the level of the call of God in our lives and the, and the demand of His grace on our lives as opposed to continually regulate, uh, you know, relegating ourselves down to the level of our agenda or the level of our schedule or the level of our energy or the level of what we're facing, our circumstances. We are not following the dictates of our circumstances. We are living according to the power of the resurrection, the aftermath. You have no idea the capacity that you have until you put a demand on it. And so when God asks us to do whatever he asks us to do, he's actually not asking you to do it in your own strength. In fact, almost all of the things that God asks us to do would be impossible if we weren't relying on him. He's asking us to exercise the power that he has imparted to us through the resurrection, to walk in the spirit and this power made available to us. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. He says, when I'm weak, personally, in my own strength, then I'm strong. In other words, even when I have a certain weakness in life, I'm not uh, trying to overcome in my personal capacity or ability, but I'm relying on the strength of God present in my life. Are you doing that? Are you putting a demand on the presence of God on your life? We need to stop assessing our capacity according to the world's standards or according to our weakness and start assessing it according to His grace. Paul identifies, first of all, here we see, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And he says a prisoner for, for, for the Lord, not because he wants some sympathy. 
Yeah, I look at a scripture like that. I look at a verse like that, and I think, why did Paul feel the need to identify as a prisoner? He could have just said, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner. But he says, I, a prisoner of the, uh, for the Lord, because what Paul is saying is that whatever it costs me to walk in a, worthy, uh, in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called, or to encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, whatever it costs me, I can do because I live by the strength of Christ. He was a prisoner physically at that time, an actual literal prisoner of the Roman government. And he says, I'm a prisoner. If I can live for Jesus in chains, you can live for Jesus as a free person living in Joburg in the year 2022. I'm a prisoner and I'm urging you to walk in a, in a manner that is worthy. You can live in the capacity and the victory of Jesus. So he says, then, I urge you to, the next word I want to focus on is to walk. I urge you to walk. Walking, he mentions in this letter eight separate times. What does it look like to walk? We spoke last week about the fact that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So as Jesus rose from the dead, we were seated with him. We, have, we are co-heirs to the throne with Christ. There's a heavenly position. But what we're seated for in heaven, we walk out on earth. So our position in heaven is that we are seated in the finished work of Jesus, but on earth we walk. And that idea of walking is really another way of saying to live in a certain way. He wants us to live in a certain way. And the certain way he wants us to live in is in a manner that is worthy. Right? So he says worthy. You are to walk in a manner that is worthy of what? Of the calling with which you have been called. Now, the, word, the, the walking and the manner of walking, the calling, is what you do. But where it says where you have been called, that's something that God has done. So we walk in light of a sovereign act of God on your behalf. We walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. Where did that calling from come from? Well, God. He gave you this calling to walk in. That word for worthy there is the word axios in the Greek, which means worthy or proper or fitting. So there are some things that no longer fit your life. They might be permissible. They might be okay for you to do. In fact, you might have an option between A and B, and both those things are permissible. They're not necessarily sinful. They're not necessarily wrong. You can do them. But our, the way that we measure and the way that we distinguish between option A and B is, is option A or option B more worthy of the calling to which I've been called? Because there is a great price that has been paid for you. And so we're not just, a lot of people say, how much can I do until it's sin? Like, what's the line where if I, if I get to this line, oh, that's still fine. But when I step over here, I go, now it's sin, now, now it's too far. And they want to know what that line is. What's the bare minimum I can give before I become sinful? That's the wrong orientation to life. 
The right question is not how much can I do before I sin, but how much more can I do to honor the calling to which I've been called? What decisions can I make about how I conduct myself in my marriage, how I raise my kids, how I look after myself, how I, how I reach out to my neighbors, how I, how I build the church of Jesus, how I do these. How much more can I give to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that I've received from God? The calling to which you have been called. Now, many people misinterpret what this verse means, and I want to make sure that you understand this this morning. Many people think that what this uh, is saying is that we have to be worthy of the calling. We have, to, we have to earn, we have to walk or live in a way that makes us worthy of the calling. But that's not what this is saying. Because it says it's a calling to which you've been called. It was a sovereign act of God. You don't earn your calling. We don't make ourselves worthy of the call of God on our lives. Because we cannot, we could never have earned this worthiness. So it's not a call to live up to or make yourself worthy of that. But that the call of God on your life is so grand, is so precious, is to be treasured and honored in such a great way that it actually changes the way that you walk. So it's not us making ourselves worthy but honoring the call that is worthy. Honoring what God has done. There's a way to walk and a calling, which is what we're called to do, but it's according to the call with which we've been called. And so we walk, we orientate our lives, we focus on what we do in this world, we make decisions based on the fact of two things, that God has done a sovereign work in our lives, but also that this expresses an immense hope for the future. So God is worth it. He's worth us making the right decisions. But also, you've got a future. You've got a great call. And God wants you to know that call and make decisions that orientate you to fulfill it. Because it's such a treasure. Let's look at where Paul talks about this in a few other places. Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 2. He starts by saying, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there is a, there is a walking, a living, that, a way that you were orientated before. What were you doing before? You were following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of this air. And so previously, before Jesus, before you received this great calling, you walked in a way that just went along with whatever the world was doing and you were ultimately led by the devil. You walked according to the culture of this world and the prince of the power of the air. In death, in sin. In many ways, we were like zombies. The walking dead. But Ephesians 2, 4 to 6 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were the walking dead, made us alive together with Christ. So now you've been made alive. That's what you have been called to. A life that's alive. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what the 
kairos moment, the bomb that goes off does in your life. It's like when Jesus stepped up to the tomb of a dead man, Lazarus, and the call of God to which he had been called came forth. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. Now a dead man shouldn't be able to hear those words. But in that moment, a bomb went off in the spirit and the body of Lazarus and the dead became alive. That's the call to which you've been called. Now Lazarus is able to hear and respond. The word responsibility broken up and turned around is the ability to respond. You're not dead anymore. You're alive. So when God gives a call to your life, you have the ability to respond. Ephesians 4.17, now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer walk as unbelievers do in the futility of their minds. We're no longer walking out futile lives, futile thoughts, futile pursuits. We're to walk worthy of the calling. Ephesians 2.10 for you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And the Greek there literally means recreated in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. That God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. Walk in them. The good works. Walk worthy of the calling. Ephesians 5 verse 1 to 2. Therefore be imitators of God. Wow. Now that's a standard. We talk about the standard is the standard. That's a standard. We are to walk and live as imitators of God. That's the capacity He's given us. As beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Kind of touches on what Pastor Will was saying this morning is that, is that when, we, when we are servants, it costs us something. We walk as children and, and we imitate God who did what? Well, He gave everything up for us. And so we're able to live self-sacrificial lives. Walk in love as Christ gave us, loved us and gave Himself up for us. Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Walk as children of the light. Have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so wisdom begins to play into all of this. Wisdom begins to play into this as we are told to walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in light. Walk in love. Walk as wise. That's a different kind of walk, isn't it? And many of us have kept our capacity to the level of getting out of bed this morning. And you're the, you're the ones that have actually done it. 
Many others are like, oh, it's a cloudy. No, I don't have the capacity. No, we're called to something so much greater. We're called to something so much greater. Walk in love. Walk in children as the light. Walk as the wise. Walk worthy of your calling. Fitting. Proper is another translation of that word. Proper. There's something that is proper for us to do. Whenever my boys are being a little bit rude or eating with bad manners or whatever, my mom always says to them, we don't do that because we are. And the boys have to reply, proper people. But you know, there's a way for us to live as Christians that makes it proper, that makes it right, that makes it fitting. And there are certain things that no longer fit your life. They may have fit your life before the bomb went off, but now it's gone off and it's not fitting anymore. What is worthy of my calling is what you should be asking yourself in every decision. Philippians 1 verse 27 says, only let your manner of life, such a beautiful, beautiful way to put it, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now the gospel means good news and it's the good news as Paul says of God's grace. And grace by definition is not something that could be earned or deserved. So this is not what we're earning but what the gospel has earned. What the gospel deserves from us. Some people in this place, I know we've dealt with this many times with young adults. Oh we'll just live together before we're married. I'll just watch pornography on the weekends. I'll sleep in instead of going to church. Or if I go to church, make sure I remain anonymous. It is not worthy of the great call to which you've been called. Yeah, you can do those things. You can move in with your boyfriend. But is it worthy? Are you shortchanging yourself? Are you costing yourself more than you realize because you didn't buy into the great calling, because you didn't make a decision to walk according to what God has called you to? The great future He has for you. Colossians 1 verse 9 to 10 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as we're filled with the knowledge of Jesus, so as to walk, there's chapters 1 to 3, chapters 4 to 6. So as to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, we can walk in a manner that's worthy of the price that Jesus paid for us. And we don't do it in our own strength. We do it because of what He's done for us. God is worth so much. Jesus is worth so much as to produce from within us this fruit that's worthy of Him. It's putting the, 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 the worth on Jesus. Finally, Matthew 3, verse 7 to 8. It says, but when He saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's what we do when we live religiously without knowing the finished work of the cross. Coming to His baptism, He said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from wrath, from the wrath that is to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what came first, the fruit or the repentance? It starts with repentance. It starts with us saying, Lord, we surrender to everything that you have done 
We surrender to the power of the cross. I'm no longer gonna try and do it in my own strength. And as we repent, which means to change your mind and to change the way you think, to change your orientation in life and to surrender to the, to the sufficiency of Christ, as you do that, what happens? Your life begins to bear fruit greater than anything that you could have imagined. It has an actual impact. And this fruit is evidence of the fact that something has happened to you that you're living in the aftermath. And that's where we're at, church. There are 40 imperatives coming up, a way that we can live. But we are not able to live that way without Jesus being present in our lives. But when He is present, and when we choose to honor that, we become humble. We're not putting on a show anymore. We're, we're able to be humble and gentle. And we're able to, to walk in love. We're able to be forgiving and bear with one another. Actually be gracious to each other, knowing that all of us are under one God, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one call to which we've been called. We're able to preserve that unity together because we're all walking in a way that is worthy of the great calling to which we've been called. Amen? Please, please reread chapters one to three. Understand who you are and then have the courage to step up to the level of the call of God on your life. It will transform everything that you do from this day forward. Amen? Amen. Won't you stand with me this morning as we pray?